Hey everyone, host and producer Doug here. This is the NDK 2019 interview with Dante Basco, known uh, most famously for Rufio from Hook and the voice of Zuko from Avatar, The Last Airbender. I just wanted to touch base and say, hope you enjoyed the episode, and we were in kind of a group interview situation, and there was uh, someone from an outlet who kind of voted himself uh, unofficial leader of the media group, and he does skip the introduction of both Deb and Christina, who was with me uh, during the interview. You'll hear Deb, longtime listeners, if you want to go back and listen to her from No Applause, Just the Clap. Uh, and then Christina was our new intern that weekend. But I just want to say Deb obviously was there. That's who is doing a lot of the uh, interview. And uh, Christina, I think, jumps in a few times as well as do I. But that's who's there. That's whose voice you're hearing. And the guy just totally misogynistically skipped the two ladies in the room, and you never do that on my watch. So enjoy the interview. All at once, mm-hmm. and, and then answer in that order. Yeah, yeah. Watch what I'm asking. Absolutely. Let's do it. Wait, what we should do is actually, I think we should go around the table and introduce ourselves yeah, first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, hi, my name is Philip. I'm from AreaDMG.com and DMGX.com, and here at at, at, at Nondescon 2019 with. Uh, I'm Doug. I'm from the uh, Blood Apple Content Network, and I'm joined well by well, so what, the females well, in the room. Yes. <laughs> The ladies. The ladies. Mm-hmm. And I'm Jim, and I'm with TheGameSlave.com. Oh, the GameSlave. And it's we're here at Nondescon 2019 interviewing... Dante Bosco. Uh, what's up? How you guys doing? Good. You doing okay? How's the concert? Yeah. The concert's great, man. It's my second time at uh, NDK. Oh, nice. Uh, they're really cool people. Like, really great people. I actually met them originally at another con, their sister con that's no longer around called uh, SDKSO.com. I was in South Dakota. I think I'm aware of it. Yeah, and so I met Amanda up there with friends and like just through hanging out and uh, you know, the kind of social part of the whole con scene, uh, became friends and um, love coming to her cons. Great. Nice. So um, before we get like while we're getting into this, I guess um, just in case people might not be familiar with who you are and what you yeah. do, uh, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, I'm an actor, writer. Uh, Producer, poet. I mean, a creative. I've uh, been an actor for over 30 years. Uh, parts that people remember me for are like uh, Prince Zugo from Avatar The Last Airbender, 
uh, Rufio, the lead of the Lost Boy from the movie Hook, Jake Long, the American Dragon for Disney, um, and various other things, I'm sure, depending on, you know, what movies or television shows you've watched. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I did have questions sure. for him. Um, you've been an actual physical actor and a voice actor. Do you prefer one over the other, or do you just kind of enjoy both of them depending on what project you're working on? Yeah, I mean, they're both great. I mean, acting is acting to me. You know, to really, it's just, when it comes down to it, uh, for actors, at least for me, is story. It's just storytelling. It's like you want to be part of good storytelling. Is that what attracts you as like a director and a writer as well? Of course. Uh, it's all story. I mean, our whole business is built on uh, storytelling. And so we're always trying to find good stories to tell. And sometimes those stories will come out uh, via live action. And there's a lot of great things with that because you get to like travel and, you know, just recreate certain things in, in tangible life. And then there's also sometimes you develop something and it plays out more in the animation world, which is great too because you don't have to worry about budgets, you know, you can do something that is fantastical and amazing and that would cost hundreds of millions of dollars if we try to do it in, in live action. And it can have just the same amount of impact, if not more, if we, if we do it through animation. So um, when we're producing, it's just kind of you know, this project in which we want to go with it. Yeah, less said about the Airbender movie, live action, the better. Don't <laughs> talk about that. Right. That's the Voldemort movie. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that that movie. I, to be fair, I haven't seen it. And um, keep living your life. Yeah, I think M Night is a is a great filmmaker. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's hard to make. It's hard to make a really good film. You know. To cram in all that mythology and yeah. please the fans and the general audience right. who doesn't watch. Yeah. It's like no one, no, no. There's no filmmaker batting a thousand. It just doesn't happen. I did want to ask. You've kind of been iconic for a couple different generations. I remember watching Hook when I was very young, and I recently introduced my nephew, who's five, to yeah. Zuko. He loves you. Oh, cool. So I mean, does it feel strange that you're iconic from movie work and from cartoon work and from TV show work? Yeah. I mean, it's strange. I mean, I don't know. You know, friends ask me because I I've been acting a long time over over three decades now, and uh, you know I've been fortunate to uh, to be to continue to work. I always see myself as a uh, really like a, I'm a blue collar kid from a blue collar town. I'm a blue collar actor. Like we're journeyman actors that go around and work, and that's our life. Uh, I've been fortunate to make a good living off of a really you know, hard industry, and uh, been even more fortunate. Some of the the characters I've done live on and have become iconic for certain generations. You know, other friends ask like, "How do you do it? How do you, how do you create iconic characters?" I'm like, "That's really dumb luck." You know, um, just you know, have that certain times, certain things you do come out at certain periods of time and uh, impact people in a certain way and. It's really, it's been really cool. I just think it's really fortunate. Speaking of impact, um, I've noticed like this year you also have another one of your poetry jams. We also have one that recorded we recorded last time. Um, can you go ahead and let us know um, what got you interested in poetry and slam poetry? Yeah, poetry is just a part of my life. Like uh, like everything, like filmmaking and acting. Uh, as artists, I think we're all just creatives, you know? Coming to cons is great because you're around all these 
creatives, whether they're uh, the artists that are coming and the guests or the, the attendees that are cosplayers, fanfic writers, uh, aspiring actors and filmmakers and YouTubers. It's like, it all comes from a place of expression. And um, when you're working, a lot of times you're just being hired uh, to be a part of other people's stories. That's great. And sometimes we connect with those stories in different ways personally. Uh, what, with poetry, with my poetry, it's just a, uh, uh, an avenue for me to kind of just tell my own stories, digest my own life. Sometimes, we all, we're all living life at a very fast speed. And sometimes in our industry, that speed is even accelerated. And so uh, the moments I get to kind of sit and uh, you know, just talk about my own life for myself half the time and write about and digest it, uh, all the adventures we go on. It's just that kind of comes from that. And, uh, and again, just kind of good luck in the way that the world works out. When I started doing poetry in the 90s, um, you know, I followed some cute girl into a poetry venue, you know, in LA, like on La Brea, Yaya T Bar. And I ran to the original clique I started hanging out with, Ronnie's Backstreet Poets. And, uh, you know, I started writing poems and started getting on stage and doing poetry. And then in my house at the time, I lived with my brothers and a bunch of other, it was like a open door situation. The door was never locked. It was like a fraternity house for artists. It's always musician, you know, I had a band at the time. And musicians sleep on the couch, actors in all the rooms parties all night, all weekend. It's like the classic, you know, act, artist fraternity house. And at that time, one of the uh, one of my really good friends, still one of my good friends today, Shihan, was staying on the couch. Um, we ended up creating this poetry venue in my living room, originally Dante's Poetry Lounge. And the packed, I mean, the place was crazy. It's like, I mean, so many people came through the house and we had DJs and saxophone players and percussionists and we were just like spitting poems and it got so crazy in fact it got a little crazy because all of a sudden you know people know where you live and then it's just like fans coming <laughs> days later to kind of knock on the door hand you gifts I'm like what's going on here I kind of got I was like checking my closets that night like is anyone still here I'm going to sleep <laughs> so we moved from venue to venue and it just kind of grew and grew and then I'm something very proud of because now looking back it's still going on, DPL, the Poetry Lounge, which is originally Dante's Poetry Lounge, Fairfax and Melrose, um, and it's become uh, the largest weekly open mic in the country, uh, which people say the world, because it's America. Uh, it became inspiration of what became Deaf Poetry Jam on HBO. That went to Broadway, that went to Tony. It's like these things, it's just, it's just little creations of art. We did, a, me and my partner, Chiyun, did a TED talk on it a few years ago. Uh, yeah, man, it's just, it's just another part of, of all of it. It all ties in, because I write scripts and uh, plays, and um, I start writing poetry. That's where it all comes from. Um, that kind of leads to a follow-up question, which is, do you like to start from scratch with a blank page, or do you like to attach an idea and kind of build it? Um, depends. I mean, I, I, I'm like a really simple writer. Like, I always tell young writers, like, write what you know. Write what you know. Because I always, I mean, 
in writing and art and everything, it's like there's a lot of great imagination that goes on and people can build worlds and we build characters and that's great, but it all needs to be grounded in some kind of truth. So uh, if you write, if you begin with what you know, you know, that'll be the truth that kind of is the glue that can hold everything together. Brings the authenticity to the whatever yeah. you're wearing. Absolutely. Yeah, authenticity. In the voice actor panel last night, you mentioned that when you're looking at a character... That panel got off the hinges for a second. It was a great panel. I had a good time. Uh, but you, you mentioned that you try and find the intersection of yourself and a character. Could you um, kind of describe that for us a little bit more? How you, how you work through that? Oh, yeah. I don't even know if I, if I find it, you know. There's that thing in the in the industry and in life, and it's played out in a lot of uh, movies, you know, all the movies we love, Star Wars, Harry Potter, and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, you go out and seek things, but then also it finds you. So when I was talking about last night, cause a lot of young actors are like, ask you advice about this, this, and that, and that, about acting and characters, and what do you want to do, and how did you do this, and, Reality is like we're all playing make believe. We're all playing make believe characters, and we're saying, "Are you the character? The character's you." And and how I was explaining it last night to a young actor, asked the question is like, "You have to understand that you could play Zuko, she could play Zuko, or and it's all good. Just the where I played Zuko, where you saw it is where the character and me intersect. When we're actors, it's." That's how it always is. Sometimes you think, oh, if only I played that role, something could happen for me. It could have or could not have. I mean, we don't know where anything impacts on anything. It's like you can never be upset that you lose a role because the way someone plays a role, that's the way they're going to do it, and that's the way it happens. I mean, it's harder when you're doing film because when you do film and television, it's so capsulized in a moment, and it's a time capsule forever. I grew up in the theater, in theater scripts and play and plays are living, breathing pieces of art. Um, there are people that do pieces and you go, they, you know, you know, Marlon Brando doing Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway is like, it's iconic, but many of the actors have done it since then. And many of the actors have done amazing jobs since then. And I grew up in theater where I would do my rendition of the character, but I would see my classmates do it. and learning from them and, and seeing what everybody, where everybody intersects with the characters. So when I just say that, it's not you finding that, it's just that's the simple science of it. It's like we can both do the same character and how you're going to portray it is going to be where it intersects with you and how I'm going to portray it where it intersects with me. Uh, it's just when we do film and television, it just gets capsulized in that moment for audiences. And, uh, and as we all know, because we're all fans of everything, Sometimes it works, and sometimes you know it doesn't. And with reboots, sometimes you get to see it more than once, which is cool too. <laughs> so, what do you think of uh, NDK so far this year? You can you can describe it in a poem if you want. Uh, NDK, I, I, I mean, I, I do really dig NDK just because I like Denver. I like the people around. I mean, I like the charity aspects of what goes on here, and the way they run. It's very you know easy and family going and. I think something about the middle of the country gives it a very kind of uh, relaxed vibe about it. So whenever I, this is my second time or so, whenever I'm here, everyone's it's pretty relaxed, it's pretty chill, and uh, and the guests are always good. 
you know, Jeremy was talking about like family reunion kind of thing, and it has that vibe to it. Uh, and, I, and I said in opening ceremony, I was like, yeah, I was stuck in Denver one night, and they were just, I don't even, I must have posted it on my Instagram or something like that. And uh, like Jeremy came up to pick me up and just, I just slapped, let me sleep in his, uh, his guest room for a few hours instead of, instead of me having to just sleep on the floor of the airport. It's like, that's NDK, yeah. that's the vibe. And, um, Huh? Welcoming? Welcoming, yeah. yeah. It's like that from the head, you know, kind of seeps into the rest of the whole con. Hopefully you're drinking enough water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, if we need any water, we have water. Oh, good. Thank you. Oh, so you'd say it has kind of a good energy, right? Totally. Great yeah. idea. So um, one thing I've noticed, though, with a lot of conventions, NDK included, is that you have that high level of energy, that really good energy, in, like in the convention, during the convention. But I've noticed with a lot of con-goers, after that convention is over, they just tend to, like, when they go back to their work or daily life and school and stuff, they tend to lose that energy. Right. Do you have any tips or tricks on how people can keep and contain that energy? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's fun. It's just like kind of like, you know, it's like the family holiday where all the family comes and then there's a somberness yeah. when it, it ends. But, uh, Do you feel like it's more valued because you only get it every few Yeah, a year? I mean, you gotta, you gotta cherish it when it's, when it's not every day, but as far as to keep it going, you know, like I said, it's a, we're all creatives, just keep creating. I mean, like, you get to show off stuff and, and, and applaud other people's stuff at certain times of the year, but if you kind of keep that creative energy going throughout the year and keep making stuff, I think you kind of keep that energy going. You know, and, and remember what's, you know, there's a lot of inspiration going around, which is great. The thing about art is we're not all just making art just to, like, show off how cool we are. I mean, we do it to a certain degree, I guess. But when you're amongst other artists, uh, it's a conversation. You know, we're having a conversation through art. And so be keen to the conversations. See other people's stuff. Dig other people's stuff. Be inspired by other people's stuff. Let that stuff impact the stuff you're doing and uh it's, and it's happening vice versa so i mean be actively involved in the conversation of art so art is kind of a pain and a joy yeah. like it's, it comes birth from pain birth from joy yeah yeah it's all it's all pain and joy you know on that note what are you most proud of creating or working on and introducing to the rest of the world even if it's just in a small I mean, it's, it's, I'm proud of a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm proud of the film. You know, I'm proud of Hook. I'm proud of being like this Asian American kind of uh, pioneering so character. You got an action figure at a very young yeah. age. Most people don't get the action figure was cool. I think I was. You had a McDonald's. I was more impressed. I was more impressed with the Happy Meal. I think at that age, um, you know, I'm, I'm 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 proud of that. I'm proud of, I mean, being a part of Avatar: Last Airbender. Um, you know, the thing is, like, you create stories, we're creating, I mean, we grew up on stories and fairy tales and stuff, right? So, being able to be part of new, new ones being created, very proud of that. Uh, but I'm proud of creating the Poetry Lounge and creating an institution in Los Angeles for a bunch of artists and poets to share their stories on a weekly level and have a form of therapy or church for them, you know, to kind of like share their stories and uh, be impacted by each other's stories. Uh, I'm proud of, I mean, you know, there's all this, you know, I'm about to embark on a new project. I have like a, uh, I'm leaving, I leave here Sunday, tomorrow night, and I fly to Manila Monday morning to direct my first film. 
So I'm directing That's in the... huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you try not to... I try not to think of that as, <laughs> you know, it gets ominous when you think about it too much. I'm just like, yeah, we're just going to go do this. So, so I shouldn't point out you're the dad of this story? Huh? I shouldn't point out that you're going to be the dad of that story? No, 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 no. I'll be a... I, I'm a... I'm a you know, I'm a facilitator. I just hire friends that I really like their stuff and hopefully um, I can inspire them to do their best stuff. And so we're shooting in, in the Philippines, we're shooting in San Francisco, and you know, proud to kind of keep going and keep on creating. I have a book coming out November 4th, which is like my, my memoirs book, from Rufio to Zuko, and that's dropping November 4th. Uh, you know, when you're kind of taking stock of your life, it's interesting. And I'm still, I still feel pretty young to be writing a, a memoirs book, which I told the publishers, but they came to me and pitched me the book, and they were like, we want, we, want, we want your story, we want you to write this book. And I was like, I feel pretty young to write a book about my life. But they basically were like, we want um, a story about Hollywood and from an Asian American perspective and you're the kid that everyone, our whole generation grew up with, like, what's your story? So, I mean, I'm proud of, like, as I'm looking through the book, proofreading it now, it's like, there's great times and there's dark times, you know? And uh, surviving is a badge of honor, you know? Uh, we'll see how, we'll see how well received the book, the book goes. <laughs> So at all points in an artist's life, they're you know taking things in to digest them and make them their own and you know rebuild them. But but as they get older, they become influences to other people. How does that feel to you to become this person that now other people look up to? Yeah, it's a trip, you know. Young actors, uh, you know, you guys, because I mean we're still in the game. But the fact of the matter is, when you're like in the acting game or the filmmaking game, it's like we're all. It doesn't matter what level you're at, we're all still in the same hustle, right? And, uh, and it's, a, it's an honorable hustle, but uh, young actors would come to me a lot in Hollywood, especially young Asian American actors, and be like, you know, you're, you're one of the reasons why I started acting. And I'm like, wow. Um, and there's a certain responsibility in that. I mean, it's cool, at first it was like kind of weird, but it was, it's, there's a responsibility in that, I mean, in my life, Mako, who played Uncle Iroh, was definitely a big inspiration in my life. He just played my, my uncle and my father, like, I think three, three, at least three, maybe four, more and more times in my career, spanning over my whole career. Like, I think the first time I was 12. And so, over the years, he's got to see me grow up and, uh, you know, got to give me advice at different parts of my career. Um, and it's special that I got me and him got to work together on his last project, which was Avatar: Last Airbender. In a lot of ways, he was Uncle Iroh in in a way to me, you know. And uh, he's part of a, this, uh, you know. When you look at Mako, he's a very prolific actor in Hollywood, respected, nominated for an Oscar in Sand Pebbles. He started East West Players, which is the, uh, a theater for Asian Americans. Um, it's one of the longest running theater companies of people of color in America. Also a theater I grew up in doing plays and writing plays in. And um, part of what he taught me, not even like 
directly like you need to do this just in his passing was like like I'm a part of that lineage of what that is and uh, a certain responsibility I have like there comes a time in your career in your 40s where you're like oh it's not really all about you you know you're gonna do what you're gonna do you're gonna continue to make more but also it's time to kind of create uh, opportunities for the generation coming up that have been already impacted by you more. My whole foray into Asian American filmmaking was directly impacted uh, and guided by, you know, the memory of Mako and what he's doing. And so now I've done like, I think I've done like seven films and about to do my eighth. And, uh, you know, partners with a few production companies that solely focus on creating those opportunities for the next generation. And, uh, and for a lot of years, it was like, what are you doing? Like, a lot of my, you know, my other producing friends in Hollywood are like, what are you doing? Like, you're not gonna make any money doing this. Like, it's really not about money. And, uh, you know, you feel kind of like prideful, like when, uh, cause I'm part of like John Chu's a friend and part of the conversation for Crazy Rich Asians and all that stuff. So it all culminated in that last year. And when that popped off, uh, you know, I felt a little bit, uh, I don't know vindicated and some producing friends were like you were right like we didn't see it but you were, you were right and it was not even about money or anything about that it's more about again just kind of creating impact and creating opportunities for the next generation so do you feel like the opportunity for diversity in casting and even in filmmaking has changed since you started it's acting definitely I'm definitely it's not over but it's for sure changed. I mean, better, hopefully. Yeah, a lot better. I mean, when I got to Hollywood 30 years ago, it was like they, you know, we didn't know. You know, there's probably one, maybe less than one, like Asian role for every hundred white roles. Like no doubt, less than one percent. Um, and I think that's the kind of key where people are like, "How did you survive in an industry where it's like there's no roles for you?" And I was like, "I don't, don't think about it too much." Or, you know. We're all going to Hollywood. We're all in a one in a million shot at best, uh, and maybe one in ten million shots sometimes. You know, so. But that being said, like you know, I made it. And a lot of my friends made it, so there's hope. Yeah. Are we? Uh, sure. Any last? I, I, I do have one. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, Brent, we'll, we'll do it on a bit of a downbeat note. Uh, hopefully not. Uh, what was it like working with Robin Williams? I mean, such an iconic comedian. Yeah, no doubt. He just looks exhausting. Yeah. He does look exhausting. Nah, he's amazing, man. I mean, rest in peace, Robin. He, uh, you know, he's everything that you think he, like, you'd want him to be. Like, imagine, like, who you think Robin Williams is, is like, that's who he is. Uh, fastest mind in the room, energy crazy on the set. I mean, he is the genie in Aladdin when he's around. I mean, magic will happen for sure. And he's that kind of dude. Um, so I had the pleasure of working with him in my teenage years, doing that, but also going to meet him for the first time, I was already a fan, uh, first and foremost, of Morgan Mindy. Yep. Uh, but grew to love his films. I mean, the world according to Garb to me was really big. And then one of my favorite films that really impacted me was Dead Poet Society. 
in which, of course, I became a poet. And so we would talk a lot um, in the mornings before he was in front of the whole set, before he was on just being Robin that everybody knows and loves. Uh, we got to spend a lot of quiet time uh, in the makeup room talking about poetry, talking a lot about poetry, about the thing, poems he liked, the poems I liked, and uh, even the poetry lounge, how it exists today, uh, and my kind of like life and poetry is, you know, impacted by the support of Robin Williams. Awesome. So before we get going, is there anything anything you'd like to promote, or where can people find you online? No, yeah, just you know, follow me. You can follow my life on Instagram at Dante Bosco. I mean, I'm pretty. That's like kind of probably my my platform of choice right now. Uh, it's fun. I like videos and pictures and stuff. And then, uh, yeah, just follow that and look for the book November fourth. I'll be uh, if you're around the LA area. I'll be the day it comes out. We're going. Barnes and Noble at the Grove in LA, and I'm flying to New York, November eighth. If you're in the New York area, I'll be doing the Barnes and Noble, Union Square. Uh, I think doing Chicago after that. I don't know the exact date on that. And then after the holiday season, I'll be doing a more of a book tour around the whole country. So hit us up. I mean, PR can help set up. If there's like cool bookstores in your area that you want us to come through, um, they'll be setting up my like, you know, my my New Year kind of book tour. Yeah, because we have like the tattered cover over here, which is pretty great for that. Yeah, then it'd be cool to do some readings and meet some people and uh, and promoting a book. I'm an author now. Crazy. <laughs> Just add something else to the resume a little bit, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, thank, thank you, you for, for joining us. Thank you guys. Thank you. Cheers, man. If you like this, check out some of our other shows like Exotic Liability, No Applause, Just the Clap, and Black Falls. We can be found at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for The BACN on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Oh, yeah.